This past November on this podcast, Shale made eight bets about the future using an unborn child named Bug as collateral. Since then, that child has entered the world. Andy, you are Bug's father. How do you feel about Shale using your daughter for a sin like gambling? <laughs> I feel great about it, actually. It was really fun. Uh, I didn't. I knew Shale was writing this article. I didn't know when he was going to publish it. And so randomly one evening, I started getting text messages from friends of mine in the energy world asking me about Bug and these various bets. And that was basically how I learned that uh, it was up and live on the internet. <laughs> That's probably my fault. <laughs> I probably should have done a better job of telling you I was going to publish something about your daughter I mean, imminently. Playing fast I, and loose. I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when. How do you think he did with his bet? What the hell? What just happened? <sighs> Is Steven calling me? Steven? Oh, Jesus. What happened to him? Hold on one sec. Oh, no. Where'd you go? My power went out. Oh my god! You're kidding me. <laughs> no. Are you in a storm? No, we're not. I don't know what happened. The whole block is out. Is it a scheduled outage? I have no idea. I'm gonna go roam the streets and figure out what happened. <laughs> Take a bat with you. Things go weird when the power goes out. Yeah. Well, it's daytime, but you never know in East Boston. <laughs> That's right. Ah, okay. All right. So what do you want to do? Uh, I don't know. I am going to get out of here, pack my stuff up and go to the library and figure out what to do next. And maybe I'll go hunt down some utility line workers or something. All right. Maybe go buy a power wall while you're out there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'll check back in with you in a little bit. All right. Well, that's a pain in the ass. All right, recording. Okay, I am recording as well. So round two, we just got disrupted by an outage. How fitting. You guys have a lot of work to do to change those utilities. Uh, if only you had a distributed energy backup power system, Stephen. We would have <laughs> never had this problem in the first place. Yeah, take a look at yourself. Take a look at yourself and make a change. <laughs> well, coming up, we are going to talk about distributed energy resources, resources that could save this podcast in an outage. First, we have a recommendation for another podcast episode produced in partnership with our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Are you looking for career inspiration? We talked with Wonder CTO Dave Reese about the decision framework he used to completely change his career path into solar, eventually co-founding a successful company, Listen to that episode on the Interchange feed and check out Wonder's financing options for commercial and community solar projects at wondercapital.com slash GTM. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM in Boston. This week, what to do about all those DERs. Distributed energy resources are going to double on the U.S. grid by 2023, according to our researchers at Wood Mackenzie. By then, we're going to have 
a massive number of gigawatts in flexible capacity, made up of distributed solar, combined heat and power, electric vehicles, smart thermostats, and battery storage. So today, utilities are much less likely to see those DERs purely as a threat. But figuring out how to manage all those resources is still a monumental challenge. Now that we're squarely in the middle of this transition, this doubling of DERs, how do we get markets right? This is an age-old question that many have been working to answer, and we think it's a good time to revisit it. Shale Khan's my co-host, coming to us from Berkeley, California. He's a senior VP of research and strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Good morning. Morning, Stephen. And that other person that you heard at the top of the show is Andy Lubershane, Senior Director of Research at the same firm, Energy Impact Partners. He is with us from Portland, Maine. Welcome, Andy. Thanks. Hey, Stephen and Shale. So Andy wrote this great piece that we're going to talk about and compare that with some of the analysis that we've done at Green Tech Media and Wood McKenzie. Shale, why have we chosen this moment to unpack the challenge of distributed resources on the grid with Andy? Well, I think it's a good moment to check back in on this distributed energy revolution that we've now, I think, been talking about for close to a decade or so. Um, But we rarely take a step back and look at one, sort of where are we today? What is happening with all these distributed energy resources? How much of them are there? What are they being used for? But then also looking a little bit forward, what might happen over the next few years and how should they be optimized? Um, and I think Andy's been doing some really interesting thinking for us. You know, EIP is is unique in that we invest in companies that deliver and optimize and control these distributed energy resources, but we also partner with this coalition of 14 utility companies um, who are trying to figure out how to manage all these things. So we're looking at it from both perspectives. And Andy's been doing some really interesting thinking about how should utilities think about distributed energy resources? What is the right strategy for them to take? And how is that going to impact how this stuff gets deployed? And before we get into the technical side of things and unpack Andy's arguments, I do want to ask you both uh, a question about utility perception of these resources. And I, I obviously know the answer because utilities are your limited partners and you work with utilities that legitimately want to figure out this challenge and, and to create a distributed grid in some sense. But you know, we've done surveys at Green Tech Media and other organizations similar to ours have done surveys and, and they've found that utilities see these resources as less of a threat. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. And certainly the utilities we work with are trying to live in the world that they're in, which means that DERs are coming. They're largely consumer driven. And so, you know, of course, they want to see uh, a glass half full scenario and, and make use of these new resources and, and sort of make the best of them. And that I suspect that's po- part of the reason that the survey data has been changing over time, because utilities see this coming and they're trying to do what they can uh, to create uh, an opportunity out of this transformation. That said, you know, I, I think there are a couple of ways in which utilities definitely do still see DERs as threats. I mean, there's kind of two categories of of reasons that DERs can be seen as threats in my mind. The first one is pretty obvious, and it's kind of the combination of rooftop solar and household batteries. Um, you know, uh, it's now technically feasible, I suppose. It has been technically feasible for a while to achieve 
100% grid independence and really cut the cord, you know, what, what Rocky Mountain Institute calls grid defection. I actually don't think that's really a threat. And I think most utilities don't think so either. That would require a massive solar array bigger than most household rooftops, batteries that are really oversized to, to last throughout the darkest and cloudiest weeks of the year. I don't think most utilities see the vast majority of their customers going that direction. But um, but load defection, meaning uh, taking a percentage, a significant percentage of a home's energy consumption off the grid, but still relying on that grid connection for something like, you know, 20 to 30, maybe 40 percent of your energy needs, that that could be a real problem. And I think based on some analysis that I've seen, some that I did back when I was at IHS, you know, we're getting to the point, certainly by the late 20, 2020s, early 2030s, where it looks like the cost will come down to the point for solar and storage where a typical household could reduce their annual consumption from the grid by 50 to 80% cost effectively lower than the current volumetric retail price of electricity. And at that point, you know, that, 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 that to me is, is the real kind of almost, if there is an existential threat in the utility industry, that's got to be one of them. And then it, well, the, the second kind of threat is a bit more subtle, and I think we'll talk about it more throughout this, this episode, but it's about non-wires alternatives. You know, essentially, if customers and their intermediaries start using DERs as an alternative to building conventional grid infrastructure, what role does that leave the utility for making capital investments? So before we get too far into the, is this a threat and under what conditions question, let's just position ourselves in where we stand today. Because like I said before, we've been talking about decentralization and the distributed energy revolution, whatever terminology you want to use for a while now. Um, So let's check in on how far that has come. So Andy, can you just give us a snapshot to start of how much distributed energy resources are out there today? Of, of what sort are they and what are they doing? Yeah. So today, I I, I guess I'd start with uh, the big three. It's kind of a weird trio in a way. It's solar panels, uh, thermostats, and building managers. And I'll explain that in a second. So maybe starting with building managers, the most established distributed energy resource, which is often I think not even thought of in these conversations because it's so established, it's kind of good old-fashioned demand response. And that comes mostly from medium to large commercial and industrial consumers. And that resource has kind of hovered around 20, 20 gigawatts since you know around the beginning of the decade after growing primarily in wholesale power markets like PJM and ISO New England in New York as a supply-side resource. Um, and what I think is really interesting about old-fashioned demand response as a DER, is that something like 80% or thereabouts of demand response today is not automated at all. Meaning that the way that you call on those resources, the way you dispatch them, if you're a utility or a grid operator, is you pick up the phone and you literally call or text a building manager and you tell them, turn something down that you've agreed upon ahead of time. And, you know, these resources, these building managers, they've proven to be effective at providing very infrequent demand response, maybe 10 times a year for a few hours at a time, um, as long as they've got a few hours notice. Um, and that generally tells me there's probably a lot more room to squeeze flexible megawatts out of commercial buildings through automation. 
Right. And that's a key point that the fact that it's not automated means that it's pretty limited flexibility. You're doing peak shedding at the peakiest hours of the year, but you, you couldn't rely on that mechanism for daily flexibility. So it's flexible and it's distributed, but you know, one of the things I wish we would do a bit more of is like defining flexibility a bit more precisely because it is a sort of, it's a, it's a very limited version of flexibility. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the least flexible, flexible resource you can you can have. Yeah, it's like um, me doing yoga. <laughs> <laughs> the least flexible, yeah. flexible resource. I, I can't touch my toes. I can probably touch my shins. So yeah, the, right. the demand <laughs> demand responsive of humans. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's so that's the old fashioned DR that we often yeah. don't even think about when we talk about distributed energy resources. Um, what's next? Right. So then there's there's thermostats, right? Um, smart thermostats. It's been amazing to watch how quickly smart thermostats have basically caught up to old-fashioned DR in like five years. So there's now about 20 million smart thermostats in the U.S., which, you know, you can kind of consider, very roughly speaking, about 20 gigawatts of, of DR, DER potential capacity. And I really want to emphasize potential there, because clearly not all of these thermostats today are set up to respond, respond to any kind of DR signal or price signal or anything at all, really, except for, you know, their owners setting their preferences on the thermostat or, or on their smartphone. But the potential is there, and it's growing really quickly. Can we spend a minute on what that potential actually is? I think we we gloss over it a lot when we talk about smart thermostats. But you know, it, what can you do with a smart thermostat that has minimal impact on you know a customer's comfort, but can deliver some value to the grid? What is the actual sort of degree of flexibility? Yeah. So you know, of course, you can you can treat smart thermostats just like an automated form of demand response and just turn them off, just kind of like the building managers do in commercial buildings today. That's not a really smart way of using smart thermostats. You know, we've learned from some of our portfolio companies at EIP about um, more intelligent methods of optimizing these devices based on um, information about the customer's home, based on the preferences they set uh, for comfort versus, um, you know, trade-offs between comfort and, and energy cost savings, that you can actually wring quite a bit of capacity and quite a bit of flexibility in terms of when that capacity is delivered from a smart thermostat by doing some intelligent pre-cooling, um, cycling of HVAC systems in, in certain ways, um, to the point where you can, you know, count on getting within usually the the peak periods in the afternoon, you know, roughly a kilowatt of of demand response that that can be shifted somewhat um, in time and and delivered flexibly um, from each thermostat. And so, just worth repeating again that though that is possible, very very few of the smart thermostats that are currently installed in people's homes are actually doing that. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I, I have an Ecobee in my home and I use it to turn turn the heat down when I leave um, for vacation or something and turn it back up a couple hours before I come home. And that's about it, to be honest, and set a schedule. And I think most people, that's that's what they do with their smart thermostat today. Right. So well, let's come back to why that is. But first, uh, the last of the big three. 
Yeah. So then there's distributed solar, um, which very coincidentally has also reached about 20 gigawatts, depending on how you count distributed um, rooftop and and connected to the distribution, lower voltage distribution system. And unlike demand response or, or thermostat, solar is not really flexible in the sense we think of flexibility, or at least the kind of flexibility we really want. Hypothetically, you can make it dispatchable, but that's only in the downward direction, meaning you can curtail solar, you can slow its ramp rate as the sun rises. But to be clear, it's not really a resource you can count on for capacity when you need it. Um, You know, inverters can maybe do some volt-var control, but but not not, uh, real power. Um, and so basically all of the solar installed today just kind of does what it does. I mean, there, there's no actual flexibility provided today. Solar is going to solar, <laughs> you know, when the sun rises, it, it comes on when clouds come over, it, it goes off and that's the way it is today. All right. So we have those big three. We have a, a much smaller volume of other distributed energy resources today, like CHP, like EV chargers, like electric water heaters. Um, but let's fast forward five years or so, you know, given sort of reasonable projections for how much of this stuff we expect to be installed, give us a sense of, you know, sort of order of magnitude, like how, how big a deal could DERs be to the grid? So I guess the headline is it could be huge. Um, I think, Stephen, you'd mentioned some work that uh, your analysts had done coming up with a number of like 100 gigawatts of of peak coincident capacity in five years. You know, I've, I've put together some really back of the envelope conservative estimates that show, you know, something like uh, 30% of, of, you know, current peak, uh, non-coincident peak capacity in the U.S. Um, could be out there in terms of all of these DERs. Now, again, that that's that's uh, capacity potential, flexible capacity potential from DERs. I want to be really clear um, in the sense that um, those resources might not be responding in any way to grid signals or even price signals. But I think it's, you know, there's there's kind of two common themes that are really important to consider for all of these types of DERs, everything from electric vehicle chargers to smart thermostats to commercial building automation. And, and the first is that they're driven by consumer demand that has little or nothing at all to do with energy savings directly. Smart thermostats people like because they can control them remotely with a voice or with a keypad. And they've got all this other gadgety stuff that makes people happy. Commercial building automation makes workers more comfortable and more productive. Um, And electric vehicles are awesome. You just and and you need a place to charge them. So people are going to have charging ports. Um, And seriously, if you haven't driven an EV, just go try it. They really are a great ride. Um, And then residential storage, for example, you know, even in California with the SGIP subsidy, and if you claim the ITC and a combined solar and storage system, the economics are actually pretty weak at best. And and outside of California, they're really terrible. But customers aren't buying storage for energy savings. They're doing it because they think it's cool and it gives them some degree of protection from outages that Stephen wishes he had today. Um, so this is consumer driven and it's not energy fa- savings driven. So that means there's going to be just tons and tons of DER potential with or without any kind of changes in utility intervention. Right. Um, and, yeah. And I want to, I want to hone in then on one of the, 
the challenges that that presents in terms of, you know, we have all these resources. And as you're saying, in five years, we'll have even more of them, so much so that they can represent a significant shift of uh, load or generation on the grid in the country. But it's actually sort of tough to, um, to utilize them effectively for a couple of reasons. So one that I want you to talk about a little bit is how much visibility utilities who are operating the grid actually have into DER deployment. I think that you, you'd assume sort of on the outside that utilities operate the grid so they see everything that happens on it. But one of the things that you've pointed out is that utilities actually don't have perfect visibility into where this stuff is. So what degree of visibility do they have? I mean, in short, they have pretty poor visibility today. Um, you know, rooftop solar, they probably have the most because um, it's very publicly visible. People have to file, you know, city permits um, to, to install it and file an interconnection request. But when you talk about smart thermostats, um, unless the utility is providing a rebate or incentive uh, or that smart thermostat is involved in some sort of demand response program, there's no way that they would know that a customer has installed a smart thermostat. And frankly, even if they have provided a rebate, unless they're tracking it really well, they might not know exactly where all of those smart thermostats in their service territory are. The same thing is true of electric vehicle chargers. Uh, unless they're doing some sophisticated customer-by-customer -customer analytics, there's really no way that a utility would, would know which of its customers or how many or how quickly they're installing EV chargers. Um, you know, residential storage, um, probably, you know, you, you're supposed to file an interconnection request, I believe, in most, in most uh, areas. But again, not being as publicly noticeable as solar on your roof, I imagine there are some customers out there that just get it installed, hire an electrician and, and wipe their hands of it. Um, so it's it's a challenge, right? And you could say the same thing for the next wave electric water heaters. You know, no need for an interconnection request there. And even if you have a smart electric water heater, the utility doesn't necessarily know that. So, problem one um, from the utility's perspective, if you're trying to utilize the DERs to the benefit of the grid as a whole, is that you just don't know where they are and how much of them there are, right? Right, and you have to you have to assume that a lot of your customers are buying them, and you just don't know, right? I don't want to go too far down a side path, but what about the DER marketplaces that a lot of utilities are starting to implement? I think by Green Tech Media's tally, there are around 100 of these marketplaces uh, with varying levels of sophistication. Does that help the utilities as they sell more of these products or they broker the, the sale of these products, even if they aren't part of some rebate program? I mean, I think it helps, but it's still going to be a minority share of the purchases of DERs. I mean, you know, the utility marketplaces, I think, are particularly good at selling smart thermostats because they often come with a utility rebate attached to them. So as Andy said, utilities will get visibility into the thermostats that are purchased using that rebate or through that marketplace. But I don't, you know, I think a couple of utilities have introduced EV marketplaces or EV charging marketplaces, and I wish them the best, but I sincerely doubt that that's going to be where the majority of EV charging purchases take place. Same goes for residential batteries or electric water heaters or, or any other stuff. So it, I think it can help on the margins, but it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, I would agree. Although I'll, I'll say that, you know, one approach and one strategic approach I think utilities can take, and we'll talk about this more later, is 
if the utilities can find a way of intervening at that point of sale and providing an incentive in exchange for some control of whatever DER is being purchased by the consumer, um, you know, that that's that's kind of the point that that is probably the best point where they can gain a measure of control and actual un, and actually unlock the potential of the flexibility that the resource offers. Um, once it's purchased by the consumer and sitting in a house, it's much harder to, to find. So let me throw up a straw man for, uh, I think, what a lot of folks might say is the obvious solution here, which is it doesn't matter whether the utility has visibility into where all these DERs are. What matters is sending the right price signals um, to the right places. And if the resources are available to respond to those prices, then the market will react as necessary. In other words, you don't need to, the utility doesn't need to know where all the smart thermostats are, but if they offer dynamic pricing that varies with time of day and perhaps even ultimately location by location according to value on the grid, then you know ultimately those resources will respond. The the you know private market will um, adjust in order to take advantage of that benefit and either utilize the existing resources better or you know focus its installation efforts for new smart thermostats or batteries or whatever it's going to be on that. Um, so first question, Andy, you know, why don't we have the smart pricing today? And then I think one of the other things that you've been putting a lot of thought into is what are the challenges with this notion of just pricing as the, the fix to all these problems? Yeah. I mean, actually one of our utility partners, um, had a quote that I thought was just perfect, which is that, you know, he said, you could argue that our job as utilities, really our only job should be to set the right prices and then step out of the way. I think that's what you were just articulating shale. And that's kind of a, like a, a beautiful philosophy in theory. I kind of think of it. I'm not sure I can say this on the podcast, but it's like the economist wet dream approach to DER management. <laughs> you can definitely <laughs> say that on the podcast. Um, and, you know, we've thought a lot about this approach at EIP and, and Shale and I and our VP of innovation, Evan Pittman, talk about it all the time. Um, and what I've come to believe, and, and I lay out in this article, is that better pricing is an absolutely necessary move for utilities to get DERs right, but it is not sufficient for a few reasons. And I think that's going to struggle. Um, utilities will struggle to get prices right for, for a few reasons. And I've kind of bucketed that into four, four categories we can talk about. Yeah. So let's talk about the reasons why you know, getting pricing right is a real challenge. Again, because I think, you know, you, you call it the economist wet dream, but I actually do think it it um, receives a lot of attention. Like this is what the sort of MIT future of the utility study type answer is, um, which I, I guess is reflected in the fact that it's it's a bunch of economists is just, you know, here's <laughs> here's the way to, to get things right is to set the right prices. Um, and that's yeah. also the, the 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 foundation of the New York Rev process as well. That somehow animating markets and price discovery would make this process somewhat seamless. Right. And uh, you know, I mean, no one pretended that it was going to be easy, but we we've now come face to face with reality of just how difficult it is to set those prices. Yeah, the, exactly. There's nothing wrong with that with that argument. It is a, it's totally true. Like better pricing is absolutely necessary and I think will it, it's critical to solve 
um, some of the cost recovery challenges that are associated with distributed solar. And, you know, as I mentioned, as distributed solar plus storage starts to um, come down further in price to the point where load defection becomes a real threat, um, that, you know, the only response is going to be getting prices to more accurately reflect the actual mix of variable and capacity and fixed costs in the system. So let's talk about why it's so difficult, because I want to believe, I want to believe that simple price discovery is really the end-all solution to DER integration. But as you wisely point out, it's it's not necessarily. So let's just talk about why pricing is so difficult. Yeah. so that, As important key, as it is. For, for sure. And that, that's the key tension. So challenge one, right? I call it technical and administrative, but you can think about it as this is the hard and complicated challenge. So, you know, for starters, there are legitimate economic, philosophical, and analytical disagreements about the most efficient way to structure retail electric prices. So I'll just give you one example. Um, most of the cost of the grid is, in the economics jargon, a sunk cost. It's bought and paid for. Um, all the transmission and distribution infrastructure we have is bought and paid for. So you could argue that the fixed nature of these costs should be reflected to consumers, and co consumers should pay them as purely a fixed grid connection fee, regardless of their peak load, regardless of their marginal uh, variable consumption. But that approach wouldn't send consumers any kind of forward-looking price signal that reflects the cost of future investments in transmission and distribution capacity. And, uh, you know, economists of goodwill can debate that, that the trade-off between reflecting fixed costs and sunk costs versus reflecting forward costs indefinitely. And that's just one kind of one example of an administrative um, challenge of implementing the right price. And then there's the technical challenge. So utility tariffs for very, very large commercial and industrial customers, you know, often already they really just kind of pass through wholesale energy market costs, um, at least locational marginal pricing. So the question is, why don't, do, why, why don't utilities do the same for all customers? And the answer is that, you know, exposing all of your much smaller consumers, even households, to the real-time marginal cost of generation and really truly system peak coincident capacity charges, it's technically feasible, but it takes a lot of technical work. And so, you know, doing so entails an investment in customer-facing data portals and customer usage analytics and billing systems. And those are new costs you need to justify to regulators. Right. Um, which is a good segue into the second challenge. Say you can do it. Say technically you figured it out. And say you've even defined the right pricing scheme, which is a, a huge undertaking. Then you you run into the regulatory side. Yeah, and, and one more point on that kind of you know uh, even just setting the prices right is difficult question. Um, you know, I think that's very true for the wholesale level um, portion of the cost structure of, of energy prices, the, you know, generation and transmission. When you get down to the distribution level, you know, in, in the industry jargon or New York Rev talk, it's the D in LMP plus D. The process of determining the costs and, you know, appropriate prices for every distribution feeder in order to send the appropriate price signals um, to incentivize things like non-wires alternatives, that's, that is, you know, a, a headache multiplied 
thousands of times over compared to just doing it for the upstream generation and transmission level costs. You know, every feeder requires engineer time and analyst time. Uh, and there's just an argument that the implementation cost of adding a location-specific D component to retail prices is you know, even less valuable compared to the, the cost that it entails. So say you come up with the perfect pricing or something close to it. We'll go with the 80-20 rule, right? You get really good pricing. Um, there's all kinds of customer groups who could oppose it in regulatory proceedings. Um, what, you know, starting with the D um, portion of the LMP plus D perfect pricing, any customer who is in a dense inner city constrained area for whom, you know, a location-based price would be especially high, um, or rural customers who are at the end of very long distribution lines um, would probably stand to lose from adding a distribution level price component, and they would oppose it. Uh, consumer advocates just tend to oppose any change that could confuse consumers. Um, Low-income advocates would oppose fixed charges that disproportionately impact low-consumption customers. Um, clearly distributed solar installers, they prefer a very bundled volumetric price, and they have opposed, um, you know, ferociously opposed changes to retail price structures in, in states that have tried to do it energy efficiency advocates too. <laughs> yeah. And in general, it's sort of, you know, it goes against a hundred years of electricity pricing. We decided societally back when we were first electrifying um, rural areas in particular, that we were going to socialize the costs of doing so. I think it was always recognized that delivering power to a rural rural community would be more expensive than delivering power to somewhere that's sort of closer to the hub of the, the hub and spoke of the grid. Um, but we decided to charge everybody the same rate. Um, so sort of unbundling that is just going to naturally introduce a whole array of political and regulatory challenges that, you know, you, you can try to solve by putting collars around it and subsidizing low income and rural. And, you know, you can, I'm sure there's a way to sort of answer every one of those groups, but it's going to make your you know, economist wet dream perfect pricing system more and more complicated as time goes on. So it's a thing that everyone agrees is important in theory, but hates in reality for one reason or another. I guess so. There, I mean, it creates winners and losers. Um, yeah, and, right. and the losers have you know concentrate have a concentrated interest. It's kind of a classical policy problem, right? Right. Okay, so that's your regulatory challenge. Um, then there are challenges that are more specific to utilities, which is, uh, you know, what, how do you make the utility whole for its investments or from the utility's perspective, being a business, like how do they make money in this world? Yeah. So as much as consumers and consumer advocates might oppose price changes, utilities themselves might oppose price changes. Um, you know, uh, th there is the question of utility business model. And if utilities in setting more uh, appropriate prices than incentivize lots of flexible DERs to, to come into the market and respond to those prices. And particularly if those DERs are responding to the prices in such a way that, it, that they serve as non-wires alternatives, they effectively cut off investment opportunities and that means growth opportunities for the utility. So, and then you, you kind of think at the extreme end of the set the right prices 
model that sort of our only job is to set the right prices and, and step out of the way model, um, which I think is kind of the way New York Rev is intended to move towards this distribution system operator concept. It's not clear at all how a utility is going to make a, cl- uh, a profit and, and you know what, what kind of a business they'll be in. I mean, you think about the closest parallel, DSO is, is sort of paralleled um, off of the ISO model, and the ISOs are nonprofits. So it's uh, it's kind of an existential identity crisis for utilities if, if they really think that their only job is to be a market operator. Right. And that brings us to this bigger question, which is, how are utilities actually going to make money off of these resources? And, the you know, those the, the complicated pricing piece is, is one important factor in um, trying to figure out how they're going to create a business model around these resources. Yeah, it's almost like you need to, you know, I think, I guess this is what Andy is alluding to, but you, you sort of need to be running on, on parallel tracks. One is on figuring out the retail pricing side, and the other is simultaneously looking at the, the regulatory model that underpins utilities in its entirety. And so you need, you know, there was talk about in the in the rev context and some of these other places that were looking at stuff like this, utilities becoming the sort of market maker and just taking little slices of every transaction. I don't think that has really played out anywhere just yet. You know, there's another option, which is to, to totally change the regulatory model and do something like performance-based regulation, which, um, you know, they've been experimenting with in the UK um, and has had its ups and, ups and downs there. But regardless, I think that the key point here is it's hard to just do this um, ideal pricing fix in a vacuum because then you create these other problems back on the utility side. I think that's totally right. I think, yeah, I mean, that 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 is kind of the key point that, that I'm trying to make in this article is that, you know, all of these changes to pricing need to be initiated ASAP, but, but they need to be initiated alongside other changes um, that will make them, you know, introduce them most effectively. So last challenge, we've, we've talked about the technical challenges, the regulatory challenges, the utility challenges. Um, what about the customer? Yes, what about the customer? So I, you know, this is where I think it's most helpful in some ways to put yourself in, in the shoes of a, a utility planner. And again, let's say you think you've come up with really good pricing scheme. Um, you think it's really accurate, re- accurately reflecting your costs. And your regulators, by some miracle, they approve it. They say, you can, you can uh, put this thing in place. You come up uh, with a reasonable methodology for baking in capacity and ancillary service costs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you make the data available to consumers and you build an API. So any you know, DER intermediary or retail um, energy supplier that, that your consumers choose can access the price basically in real time. So the question is, you know, today, could you as a utility count on doing this to get a reaction from your customers? So I, I was in the article, I'd say, you know, it, it, think of a fast food franchise manager. Will that fast food franchise manager check their phone and see that the price of electricity has gone up to $10 a kilowatt hour and then, you know, flip a button to turn off the fryolators um, for, for an hour? Like, you know, customers, basically customers are just not ready. The market has not evolved to the point where customers will respond, are ready to respond to much more sophisticated pricing. And I think, you know, thinking even taking a step back beyond that, it's not clear that customers even want this. So 
I think we've laid out sufficiently all the, the challenges um, with introducing effective pricing to incentivize DERs to respond to grid signals. Um, let's talk about what some of the alternatives or I guess supplements are, because as you pointed out, I think the, the case that we're making is that this stuff should happen um, deliberately and intentionally and incrementally, but it, it's necessary, but not sufficient. So let's lay out some of the the additional factors that can one sort of solve the utilities challenges in transitioning to a market that has more DERs in it and two get this stuff installed and utilized, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there's a number of things that utilities can do. And of course, I, you know, I'm kind of paid to think from a utility perspective, but I'll, I'll just lay them out there. You know, one is that as you introduce a new uh, a new tariff regime or a new rate plan, maybe it's even an optional rate plan, um, include in that tariff or that rate plan um, various DER offerings. And there, there are a variety of ways, depending on what your regulators say as a utility, that you can make money off of offering those DERs. Um, so, But the basic concept is, you know, hey, customer, I'm going to change your prices so that they vary more throughout the day and that actually um, there are going to be a few hours a year that are really important to setting your pricing. But don't worry, because at the same time, I'm going to give you these three devices which or sell you these three devices, which, by the way, you probably want anyway for reasons completely unrelated to energy. And alongside those devices, I just have the option to come in and tweak them every so often. And look, I've done some analysis and based on your previous rate plan and how you were using energy and your new rate plan, plus these DERs, you'll actually save money on balance over the course of the year. I mean, that's that's the that's the essential core, I think, of, of the argument of introducing better prices at the same time as providing the DERs to customers to respond to them. So it's like a really souped up version of a green tariff program, but with like equipment built in. But it, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same concept. Sort of. I don't even think it's as revolutionary as that. One example from amongst DIP's utility partners is Oklahoma Gas and Electric, which has been running a really successful dynamic peak pricing program since like 2011 that comes with an optional thermostat. Um, so I think about half the customers have gotten a smart thermostat with as part of the program. And, and I don't even think OGE is controlling those thermostats on the customer's behalf, but just by introducing the thermostat at the time of sign up for the dynamic peak pricing program, they actually get like hundreds of megawatts of peak load reduction from those customers. They've just built it into how they um, schedule their thermostat. So you could imagine it would be even more powerful if the customer was allowing the utility some measure of control. And I also think for the people who you know might hear this and think this is the monopoly utility um, exerting too much market power, you know, it doesn't inherently have to be the utility who does all this stuff. I think the the core point that you're making, Andy, if I'm understanding it right, is just attach these two things together, attach the um, introduction of a new pricing program that is more dynamic, that creates the opportunity for control in response to a grid signal at, with the uh, installation of devices that make it easy to do that within the home. And then potentially adding some measure of control by an aggregator, a third party, a utility, somebody. 
Right. And in fact, you know, again, it, as you said, it doesn't have to be a conventional regulated utility, certainly in in non-regulated competitive retail markets, you know, competitive retailers can can put together any rate plan associated with any DERs they want and make this happen. And you know, I think we're seeing retailers in competitive markets start to put together plans just like this, mostly currently involving smart thermostats, but I think we'll start to see some other DERs enter the picture moving forward. Another example that I'm fond of that I, I haven't seen yet in the US, but exists in, I believe, Switzerland, um, is with electric vehicles. There's a partnership between a utility and a third party um, that is called, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's it's something like Juicar, J-U-I car, um, where basically it's a total cost of ownership lease for an EV. So with your electric vehicle, you pay one fixed amount for all the maintenance and all the things you normally get with a lease, but you also get electricity. Um, you get electricity, some charging at home, and you get some measure of charging through a, a network of public chargers that are part of this same network. And you know what you could do on top of that is say, here's your fixed monthly price for your EV charging. But if you let us exert some measure of control, or if you let us, you know, slightly alter the hours when you can charge, you'll get a lower fixed monthly price for your total cost of ownership lease. Like those types of innovations, I think, are the way to to get this toward mass adoption. Yeah, totally. And and maybe an extension of that is this concept that I, I think is super interesting. Again, not revolutionary, but um, I think DERs, the introduction of, of DERs can can really make it sing, which is the flat bill. Um, it's a totally different approach in which, you know, let's say you're a, re- a fully vertically integrated regulated utility. You still come up with this really cost reflective pricing model and you use that to figure out what your cost to serve every individual customer is. But you don't actually send those cost signals or those price signals to the customer. Instead, you offer them a completely flat monthly bill that's equal to their kind of baseline cost of service based on their historical consumption. And then you also offer them this managed energy service package complete with a bunch of DERs that allows you to lower their actual cost of service moving forward. So let's say previously on average, they cost $100 a month to serve. And with these DERs, you can lower the cost to $80 a month. Now, there's $20 of value there. And how that's split moving forward between utility shareholders and the customer and maybe other ratepayers, that's a question for regulators. But there is value created. Um, and I think, you know, historically, this flat bill model, it's kind of funny, has been criticized and opposed by, say, efficiency advocates, definitely distributed solar um, installers. But there's kind of a strong argument to be made to regulators that, you know, getting back to consumers don't want to do any of this themselves. They don't want to think about energy costs and energy savings. The utility, if you give them an incentive, will find the opportunities to reduce energy costs for for customers, so long as you give them some reasonable portion of those savings. I think it's a really interesting model. And, and it's also popular, by the way. One of our utility partners has an all-you-can-eat flat bill plan, and they've gotten about a quarter of their customers that have signed up for it. I have sort of mixed feelings about it. On one hand, I see all the benefits of it, and I can see why customers like it. On the other hand, completely removing any price signal 
and removing any economic incentive for customers to conserve energy, shift when their energy is used. You know, even even if some of my devices are controlled by a third party or the utility and in response to the needs of the grid, you know, there's still going to be some measure that is up to me, the homeowner. And so I get a little nervous about just like completely removing that from the equation. So I wonder if there's some happy medium where, where I've still got some incentive, but better visibility into my bill and, you know, allow some control to somebody else. Yeah. And and there's also, I think another argument against it that will certainly come from, from any kind of third party DER installer or aggregator is if you don't actually provide um, price cost reflective pricing even whatsoever to at the customer level, then there's, you know, it, it does kind of create a DER monopoly because, because the utility is the only one who can take advantage of what they know to be the, the cost behind this one flat bill. Um, so it, it, it should appropriately be, be sort of criticized on anti-competitive grounds, I think. So we've laid out all these possibilities now, all the challenges with getting better pricing right, but recognition that that is still important. These other options for what utilities can do. Um, it's all sort of theoretical, I think. Where do you think that we're heading right now? Like if nothing major changes, then what does the world of, of DERs look like in five years or 10 years? You know, sadly, for the reasons that we laid out earlier, I'm a bit of a pessimist that prices will change fast enough to respond to improvements in and technological changes on the DER side. I think I think there's going to be tons of regulatory pushback. I think the business model questions for utilities are tough ones. Um, I'm I'm pessimistic and and frankly, you know, having talked to a lot of utilities out there, I think, you know, they're unfortunately a bit pessimistic that they'll be able to move to to transition prices fast enough. Um, so sort of the, the you know the core of what we've been talking about is 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 the challenge, and I think that's going to remain. And that that kind of leads me to believe that more direct der control and management types of solutions are going to be the first step and and a really critical bridge for the next five years. Um, you know, providing specific programs for utility for customers to participate in via their DERs, and then sort of the utility reaching directly out to those DERs to provide, to, to, to grab control over them, regardless of what prices they've set in the background, I think um, are going to be the way things move for a while. Andy Libershain is Senior Director of Research at Energy Impact Partners. He joined us from the beautiful city of Portland, Maine. Andy, thanks for joining us. Oh, really happy to. Thank you. Shale Khan is a senior VP over at Energy Impact Partners, a senior VP of research and strategy, I should say. Uh, Shale, thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Good to have you, Andy. For more detail on Green Tech Media and Wood McKenzie numbers on the DER surge, check out the show notes. We're also going to have a link to Andy's analysis piece. In the meantime, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter with show ideas or a response to this show. What do you think is going to happen on the grid with all these distributed resources? I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next week.